be seated. Well, for the next few weeks before uh, we start the, the fall sermon series proper after uh, Labor Day, I'm revisiting a, a few psalms uh, that I worked through or preached through seven to eight years ago. And so I was telling this session, this is actually a really helpful exercise for me uh, to go back and look at things I did years ago. Uh, almost always I cringe uh, when I see what I did and I think, those poor people, I, I can't believe they had to listen to that. Uh, but it's useful to see how you know, God has worked in my life and the sanctification process and how I, I've grown in knowledge of him. So they're always a rewrite. So this is very much a brand new sermon, though I'm revisiting sermons I've done. I think actually this one was eight years ago. Well, before we get there, the Psalms, uh, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to say this, but the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. A lot of people don't realize that. It's not merely poetry. They were intended to be sung together, and the Old Testament people indeed did sing through this. In fact, Christians have sung through these for the entire history of the church. And we you know, tend to sing songs about, if you just think about our worship service today, uh, we tend to sing songs about salvation or God's sovereignty or his grace. And of course, all those things are good, and we should sing about them. But rarely do we sing songs like today's psalm, Psalm 14. And as, as we work through it, I, you're probably going to see why. I mean, this, this psalm could, I guess, by modern standards, be considered uh, distasteful and maybe even offensive to some of our, our sensibilities. Look well, again, it is Psalm 14. Let me read it for us. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's, let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, um, meditating on this, these ancient, ancient words that were sung together by your people uh, for generations and are still being sung together. Lord, we thank you for them and pray that this word would, uh, would go deep into our hearts and our minds but really to our heart, to the center of where our very character is, to the center of our very being, that we might be shaped to you and by you, that we might in turn walk in your ways and love what you love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we read uh, David's words there, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I think probably, if you're like me, we, we immediately think of modern-day atheists. You know, atheism, as we experience it today, uh, is historically, if you're looking at just human history, it's, it's a very recent and modern phenomenon that's particular 
to Western culture. So think of America, you know, England, Germany, France, that, that sort of thing. And it's really a response uh, to Christianity, and it depends on Christianity. Really, it's kind of parasitic on Christianity for its shape and definition. What David has in mind is not that. It's, it's in fact, different. And to get at what he means by the fool, I think it's useful to, to turn around and, and speak positively and, and talk about the opposite of a fool, which is the wise. Uh, the wise person is someone who is, well, not just experienced or, or savvy about how the world works or is well-read or, you know, can do long division or, or whatever. That's how the world usually defines wisdom. And while there is real value to all those things, and we should, I think, learn them, it's good to be well-educated. What the Bible has in mind is different, and it, and it actually goes far, far deeper. As uh, Jack Collins, who is one of my Old Testament professors, and he, what he taught in, in the course uh, Wisdom Literature, he, he says that wisdom is the spiritual counterpart to common sense. It's skill in the art of godly living. It's the art of living every moment in light of God. So for example, common sense knows that you, you don't put your hand on a hot stove. That's knowledge that comes from uh, experience, and in turn, it's, it's knowledge that is common. It's, it's available to anyone and everyone. It's why, for example, uh, it used to be describing someone as having common sense, it, it used to be an insult. It used to, when someone said, oh, that guy's got common sense. We take that as, as compliment. No, it used to be an insult because it meant that person had not actually learned anything that wasn't merely common. No, wisdom goes deeper and finds its seat in the heart, in the center of where desire meets thinking and emotions. And wisdom is is action-oriented, and it's character-driven, and it, it derives from what we love most. But when I say character, I, I don't have in mind kind of the nebulous concept that often pops up in schools or, or billboards with phrases like character matters, as if everyone has agreed on what character is, let alone what counts as good character. Again, as, as Jack Collins teaches, wisdom is the result, wisdom, biblical wisdom, is the result of a mind and heart in tune with God's word, his character, and his desires. It's a human life that is fashioned. It's shaped by God and to God. It's why, for example, and we just saw this in our, our profession of faith, right? It's why, for example, by calling Jesus the Logos, the Word, John in his gospel was saying, among other things, that Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. It's wisdom in the flesh. So if you want to know what the wise person looks like, if you want to know what godly character looks like, then look to Jesus. Well, a fool then is not merely someone who makes bad decisions or a bad decision or is naive. So for example, teenagers in their, their lack of experience and really their inability to consider long-term consequences often make stupid and what we would say are foolish decisions. It's why when you, you ask them why they did, did something, like, why did you do that? 
Every kid's heard that. You've heard that, parents. Why did you do that? They will often say, I don't know. That's not dodging the issue. Sometimes it's dodging. But a lot of times it's not dodging the issue. They really don't know why they did what they did because it's a symptom of their immaturity. It's a symptom of immaturity to not think through things and to impulsively just do it. Thank you, Nike. Right? Some of us are still living with the consequences of foolish, youthful decisions. It's why David writes in Psalm 25, Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for, for you, Lord, are good. So he looks back on his youth and shudders, as most adults do. So, for example, it's, it's a common uh, thing that young people like to say to me since I coach a lot and do that sort of thing. They like to say, oh, you're so old. As if that's an insult. And I say to them, you're not going to see this now. I would not trade my knees for the position you're in right now for anything. I will take old every time. Because there's growth. There's maturity. There's learning to see what a thing is. So as mature and wise adults can see, and by the way, this is important, by the way, our culture is full of immature adults who know how to make lots of money or have graduate degrees but have not grown past their teenage years. A mature adult can clearly see a young person's foolishness when the young person can't. When the young person can't. Obtaining wisdom and growing in maturity is learning to willingly choose what is good and right. Let me say that again. Growing into maturity is learning to choose, not being compelled, not because you have to. It's learning to choose what is good and right as God defines it. And this is not something that comes naturally. It must be taught. It must be modeled. Go read Deuteronomy 6. That's the assumption. Parents, your job is to choose what is good and right and to model it for your children. No one naturally in our sinful condition chooses the good as God defines it. So a fool can be like an inexperienced teenager. And by the way, I don't think inexperienced teenagers by definition are fools. I think that's wrong. They're inexperienced, that's different, right? So they can be like an inexperienced teenager who thinks they have it all figured out. And again, again, it's so easy to find middle-aged people who have not progressed beyond the desires and habits of their teenage years. But a fool is much more dangerous, much more dangerous. A fool does not have a heart that is set on God, and he knows it. He knows it. Now keep in mind that David, at least initially, though I think he expands his view to the nation surrounding Israel, is addressing Israelites. He's addressing Israelites. So the fool is not merely a pagan, though that's, that's true enough. As David sees it, a fool is a descendant of Abraham who has rejected Abraham's God. So when the, the fool says there is no God, it's not the denial of God's existence like you see among modern atheists. It's the rejection of God's authority over him. So when he says there is no God, he doesn't think God will judge him. 
or perhaps he doesn't care. He doesn't think he has to answer to him or give an account of his life to him. Or perhaps it's worse, you know, like Satan, he'd rather choose sin and death over life and faithfulness because to be the master of my fate and the captain of my soul is better than to give that role over to God. Better to rule with the devil in hell than serve in heaven. Besides, as everyone knows, just turn on the TV, right? As everyone knows, hell is more fun. At least in the meantime. And this is essentially what the prodigal son is. You know, he, he wanted his father's money, even as he wanted his father dead, so that he could in turn live however he wanted. And the claim of the Bible is, is you know, that not only is Israel's God a God, he alone is the one who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, which by definition means we owe our very existence to him. That we have breath is a gift. That we have the ability to sit here and listen, all gift. But he didn't just make us and then set us loose to do whatever or be whatever we want. That's the prodigal's dream. You know, we want God to support our life and, and not tell us how to live it. You know, so that's, that's the rebellious teenager, right? Just give me the money, give me the keys, and leave, leave me alone. Right? That's, that's the fool's version. No, he made us as his image bearers to live in union with him. So to be a truly alive human is to live with and for this God, and that's a good thing. That's what life is as God intended it. So like a wife who chafes against the confines of her marriage, to reject life with God is not to choose freedom. That's the lie. It's to have believed the serpent's lie that we are free to be a God unto ourselves and to do whatever we want, even as we expect God to continue to provide for our needs. David Foster Wallace, uh, the agnostic literary heavyweight, uh, straight up said, there is no such thing as a human that doesn't worship. Think about that. An intellectual agnostic said, there is no such thing as a human that doesn't worship. And this is just another way of saying there is no such thing as an autonomous individual who is free to determine reality as she sees fit. So you will either be yoked to the God who made you for himself or you will be yoked to the lie of the devil and in turn will worship anything and everything. So maybe like you know, the dying breed of scientific atheists, you are beholden to the ideologies of liberalism and philosophical positivism as the ultimate arbiters of truth and will defend it to your dying breath as the way things really are. Awesome. Or maybe it's like the phenomenon that Tim Keller noticed 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago in New York City, when young people who had been raised in the church and claimed to be Christians suddenly started calling God into question or denying his existence or the goodness of biblical ethics, he would ask this simple diagnostic question of them. He wouldn't say, why do you think that? Have you considered this position? He would just ask, okay, who are you sleeping with? Who are you sleeping with? 
It's uncanny how the sexual revolution has led to the rejection of God among Christians. Among Christians. It's presented as liberation and freedom. You're just exploring who you really are. But as the prodigal learned, it's slavery and death. But notice that David moves from the fool to, you know, singular to the plural they. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And this is exactly the sort of thought that, that Paul takes up in Romans, for example. And what David is describing is really humanity in mass, a humanity just like the nations that surrounded Israel whose collective heart is set on something other than God. A humanity that is not united to God cannot help but be corrupt or do abominable things, that is, things that, that God hates, things that God detests. And they fail to do the good despite all of their justification that we really are good. But of course, humanity absolutely sees it otherwise. It's like what Romans 1 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's why in our, our post-Christian culture, legalism, self-righteousness, and puritanical behavior is skyrocketing among those who openly and self-consciously reject our God and his values. The damning part of this is that David equates the Israelite fool to a pagan. So despite his outward appearances or his cultural practices as a Jew, despite you know, looking like an Israelite or claiming to be an Israelite, he is in reality no better than a pagan because he denies God in the secret place of his heart. Now, to put that in context, when a, when a man claims to be a Christian and self-consciously does the typical superficial cultural Christian practices that's expected at church or maybe polite society where your, your grandmother is, and yet knowingly keeps on living like the world, there's how he is at, at church, right? There's how he is when he has to go home or Thanksgiving. And there's how he is in reality. Well, that person, whether he realizes it or not, is the fool of Psalm 14. And again, he is in a very dangerous place. Now, one of the objections to the phrase, there is none who does good, is that we can see people regularly doing good things. And that's true. That's true. You don't have to be united to God in order to do an act of kindness or generosity. You, you don't have to be a Christian to never commit murder or never rob a bank. So, for example, you know, some of the kindest and most sympathetic people I've ever known have been gay. And some of the most loving parents have been diametrically opposed to our beliefs. I mean, parents who love their children. The issue is not whether someone can do outwardly moral acts and mean them. People do them all the time. But doing good deeds is not evidence of a person having a heart that is good, let alone that it's set on God. So it's, it's not to your credit that you haven't murdered anyone. People want to say it, no it's not. That's just, that's just your 
duty. That's, that's just what's expected. Well done, you didn't kill someone. You know, it's in our times, most often what, is, what counts as good is really just being nice. And even that's superficial. So being nice means don't be a jerk. Don't hurt anybody. Share your toys. Play nice, right? Go with the flow. Accept anything and everything. But the reality is it's impossible. It's impossible to speak the truth in love and at the same time be nice. Niceness doesn't tell the truth. And what's more, it doesn't want to. But godly kindness does. It tells the truth in love. And as David says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. And you might see a note in your Bible where it says, any who acts wisely, who seek after God. Like with the Tower of Babel, this is, this is judgment language. God does not merely judge a few actions here and there as if he's only catching a highlight reel of a person's life. No, he looks into the secrets of every human heart and no one can hide from his gaze. It's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount focuses on the heart and not merely on a few outward actions. So Jesus practically says there, you haven't shot anybody? Great. What have you thought about that person? What have you said about that person when they weren't in your presence? See, murder begins in the heart, not with a bullet leaving the barrel of the gun. I remember seeing a t-shirt years ago that said, it's all about me. Right, so this person is wearing a t-shirt they purchased that said, it's all about me. I mean, the shamelessness of the person was stupefying. I, I laughed when I saw them wearing it. And maybe that was the point and the person was attempting to be ironic. It was a while ago, so maybe they're just being a hipster. I don't know. But I doubt it. I doubt it. But he was right, though. Apart from God, inevitably, it's all about me. Even when I can point to some, some wonderful things I've done. And the beginning of wisdom is recognizing that I don't have to wear a shirt announcing it's all about me. Don't have to wear it. No, it's, I've got it tattooed on my heart. And God sees it. God sees it. It's not hidden from him, even as we, we can hide it from other people. But in his kindness and the ongoing work of sanctification through his son and the power of the spirit, he is doing the slow, hard, and painful work of tattoo removal for those who love him and have responded to his mercy and love. Now, David asks, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord. So the Israelite fool who looked the part, but who was at best superficially nice to his neighbor, hating the poor, not outwardly, but maybe in his heart, quietly fleecing his customers, seducing his neighbor's wife or at least lusting after her. The Israelite who was in his heart set against God. Well, David sees 
the same heart disposition and the open hostility with the nations and how they, are, they were set against Israel, much like how Egypt, if you'll remember, housed Israel for a time before Egypt turned on Israel and tried to eat her like bread. Well, the world, as Psalm 2 says, rages against God and his anointed king. The nations are united in their Tower of Babel-like uh, rejection of God. So you will not rule over me. You will not rule over me. Give me liberty from this God or give me death. And of course, the nations, these, these groupings of people, they exude strength. Of course they do. And power and intellect. Like the Romans or the Nazis. Or the appearance of a, a cool kind of self Assurance that seems to have life by the tail. Like with Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. But it is God they are set against, and it is God who will oppose them. It is God who will redeem his people from them. After all, where are the Romans now? Where are the Nazis now? And yet God's people endure not by their own strength or their righteousness, no, but because of him. And God, no matter what modern people may think in Western countries, God remains undefeated, and he will so. Well, the psalm ends, and I think it is right to, to read those final verses in light of Christ by looking forward to the coming day of the Lord when Jesus returns visibly to make all things new, bringing life for his people and judgment for those who oppose him. And as Christians, we know how the story ends, and, and Israel did too. And we're called to live in light of both what God has done throughout history, but also what he has promised to do. In fact, we could trust the promise of the future because of what we have already seen him do. And without that hope, though, without being able to look both backward and forward, we cannot rightly live in the present. That's the thing. To rightly live in the present, you have to look both backwards and forwards. That's why when we do the Lord's Supper, we talk about both. We celebrate the Lord's Supper in the present, even as we're looking back to the cross and forward to the second coming of Christ. And that's our, our struggle, I think. I wouldn't call anyone, I would call no one here a fool, as in someone who knowingly rejects God in his heart. But because we are so enmeshed in a foolish, self-centered, it's all about me culture, living in step with Christ is really difficult. It's really difficult. You know, from time to time, I find myself going about my day as if it's just me as if I am a, a, a little island floating amongst other little islands that sometimes bump into and interact with each other. And it's not that I, I've consciously rejected God, it's rather that I live as if he doesn't exist. But despite my experience of him, which by the way, sometimes I do feel his presence, and sometimes not, God is always present, always. Like Jonah prayed, there is nowhere I can go. Think about when he prayed that in the belly of that great fish. There is nowhere I can go, even to death itself, 
that God is not there. I cannot escape him. Not even my thoughts can hide from him. And yet, the near constant daily temptation is to take the disposition of the fool and think, there is no God. I am my own man. Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author who spent uh, eight years in prison for his critiques of the Soviet Union and who won the Nobel Prize in 1970 for that, uh, was asked to give the commencement address at Harvard in 1978. And he chose for his subject the trajectory of the West, that is, how Western Europe and America was progressing. That is, uh, what's their future look like? What's his, his prognosis? How does he think the West is going? And in that speech, he said that he, he seriously doubted that the United States could prove a suitable ideal for Russia to move past her atheistic communism that had left hundreds of millions of people dead. Now, again, remember, 1978, but he went even further. He says, the West has finally achieved the rights of man and even to excess, but man's sense of responsibility to God and society has grown dimmer and dimmer. Again, he made that observation 45 years ago. Sounds like a prophet. As the people of God, you know, as people who self-consciously bear his name, the idea that we are responsible to God, that we are made in his image, that we are united to him and have the privilege of living in light of him is a quickly fading idea. I mean, think of it this way. If we are really convinced that we are always and everywhere in the presence of God, wouldn't that affect our prayer life? or how we interacted with our neighbors. You know, the issue is not how well do you pray. Sometimes people ask, ask me that question as if all of your prayers should sound like the prayers I prepare ahead of time for the worship service. You can pray anytime, all the time. And God is not looking for flowery pastor prayers. Right? Or wouldn't that affect how we interact with our, our neighbors if we knew God was always with us. Wouldn't that affect how we approach forgiveness and repentance in our marriages when we remember the person I'm arguing with, the person I'm dead set against, belongs to God too and is also an image bearer and also has the same spirit? Wouldn't that affect our worship and our desire to come together with God's people to worship? As Pastor uh, Brad Edwards, who is a church planner, uh, out in Colorado recently said, he said, the church is not a provider of spiritual goods and services. So I'm not doing that for you, by the way. I'm not a provider of spiritual goods and services any more than God is a cosmic vending machine. The church is a family, not of blood, but through the blood of God. How you view the church, either through the lens of consumerism you know, what am I getting out of this? Uh, the songs are okay, I guess. I don't know. Uh, maybe not today. Versus through how God has sought you out to be his bride through blood. Says a lot about how we see God. So wouldn't this in turn affect our honesty about how much we need God? And in turn, quit putting on airs. Wouldn't we be a bit more vulnerable and sympathetic with broken people? Now, I'm not saying these things to shame anybody. 
I'm saying them because we, you know, of all people, we ought to think seriously about this stuff and whether we consider them a privilege or an obstacle to our liberty. So we, all, we, we so often approach God as if the most important thing about the relationship is whether or not he fits with how I want him to be or with how I've planned out my schedule. No, the most important thing in the way it really is is how God thinks about us. And here's the crazy thing. You know, the God, God the one who judges the heart. Just think about that. The one who judges your heart and sees to the very depths of your being has set his love on you. He has given you life through his son and the power of the spirit and he has made by choice his home in you. And he did not do this out of obligation like, I don't know, some government official who feels the duty to pass legislation for the poor to help his reelection efforts because he really doesn't care about the poor. No, he did it because he loves you and he delights in you. So let us not treat him as the fool does, as the prodigal who says, support me, give me my money, give me my stuff, and then get out of the way. Now let us set our hearts on him in response to his love. Let us learn to love the things he loves and to walk in his ways. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. It's a beautiful thing because our love is not steadfast. Our love is at best wishy-washy, but you are good. You endure. You are patient. You delight in us. Thank you for this grace and this mercy and this kindness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.